Hello, you lovely bunch of lovely ears. This is the Embers Collective podcast. Welcome to episode 13. And you're listening to me, Talisa Teixeira. And I'm going to be telling you a story about Yuki Ona. Enjoy. Hundreds of winters ago, in the depths of the Japanese Yamagata Mountains, where two valleys met in a white collide of wind and snow. At the foot of two mountains, peaks blew like waves. A group of samurai were sitting on duty. They camped in the forest, and with the orange glow of their fire keeping them warm, they told each other tales as their swords lay at rest. The youngest of the warriors, Kenshin, a slight man, his hair only just long enough to tie up in a tight knot at the back of his head, was sitting a little further away from the fire listening to these stories with keen interest. But these stories all come from somewhere true, don't they? You know, only the other day I heard that that these woods are terrorised by Yuki Ona. I was talking to a local villager who told me she'd been spotted recently, running in her white kimono through the leafless trees. <laughs> the other warriors belted out a strong laugh. <laughs> Are you being serious? Oh, come on, Kenshin. These stories, they're for kids, said one of the warriors, standing up. Having drunk so much and spurred on by heavy laughter, he got up to do the thing that one needs to do after a lot of drink and a lot of laughter. He'd been holding it in for a while because the idea of moving away from the fire is, well, terrible in this cold. He'd walked further away from the men than he realised because when he went to turn back, the light of the fire was so far away it looked more like a piercing yellow eye of a snow leopard. His eyes were doing tricks on him in his blistering cold. He he then thought he saw he then thought he saw the shape of a woman. He could he could see the outline of her beautiful features and she seemed to be holding a a baby in her arms. I cannot wait for spring. He wished upon the pink blossom which covers everything and rubbed his eyes which were filled with salty icicles. But to his shock, as he walked closer, he realised this wasn't a strange trick of the winter winds but an actual woman on her own in these woods miles away from the village. She was crying and she held the bundled baby out towards him. Please, she said in an almost not sound. Take my baby in your arms and warm him. I'm I'm too cold to 
keep him safe. And he took the baby, knowing it would die otherwise. The child was freezing and was breathing very, very lightly. Its little breath forming no curls in the air, for it too was winter. The baby was colder than the snow around him and before the warrior could rub the back of the baby to get some heat into it, he realised his hands had stuck themselves to the baby's white, white skin. The warrior tried to run towards the men he'd somehow forgotten about in this confusion, remembering the heat of the fire, but his, his legs had, had frozen to the earth like the trees around him. This was when the child grew heavier and heavier, pushing him to the ground. And just as he was about to shout for help, his throat iced over and he saw the woman's tears drying up and a broad grin growing across her face. Dinner. The search for the missing samurai had begun before daybreak, and what they found in the morning dawn was a horrifying sight to young Kenshin. Ooh, it was a horrifying sight, he said. And the warrior was lying on his side, frozen to death, clutching a giant icicle. Kenshin slowly turned his face towards the rest of the samurai and they all understood in that moment that Yuki Onai wasn't just a fable to tell the children. After that day, a number of people from the village were claimed to have been found completely frozen to death, holding onto large blocks of ice or piles of snow. The samurai were determined to rid the town of fear and set off to hunt Yuki Onai. Kenshin set off into the forest in search of anything abnormal. After a few hours of walking towards the spot there, their camp was that night their friend was taken, he heard a child's laughter through the trees. Go home, child. Do you hear me? These woods are not safe. Run to the safety of your mother. The child giggled in the distance. <laughs> its echo causing some snow to fall on Kenshin's brow. Snow. It felt colder than snow had done before. Kenshin started to run after the child's laughter until he could see him at the foot of a tree, a little peak of the hood of his winter coat made of straw appearing behind a silver trunk. Kenshin ran towards him and the little boy sprinted off further into the forest. Pulling out a sword in metallic ring, the samurai went deeper, running after the child, keeping him in sight. But as he did so, he noticed the child was growing larger and larger at an alarming rate. Yuki Ono's baby, he realised, as he skated past the footprints which were now as large as those of a grown man still rounded and fat as those of a toddler's. Still giggling, the child turned around in his game of chase to face Kenshin. <laughs> his teeth had not yet come through. He smiled, an empty smile, thinking of what to do next. 
before the child could lift his arm to strike Kenshin, or maybe hug him. It was confusing. Kenshin ran up the side of a tree, lighter than a squirrel, swung his legs around the branch, and kicked the baby over the ground. He was now standing above the giant baby with a sword to its chest. Yes, like a motherfucking samurai. Kenshin had a disturbed uneasiness in his stomach as he drove the sword into the evil child's heart as it continued to giggle. But as he did so, its form shattered into ice and frost like a hollow ice sculpture. Kenshin thudded to the ground on two feet. It went dark. It went very dark. The winds, they picked up. And then a formless cry of despair from a woman, from Yuki Ona, all around him, like the wind. Kenshin knew he'd have to find somewhere to hide and quick. He ran lightly over the snow, pressing through the wind towards the village where he'd come from. Before him was an old man, someone he recognised from the village, struggling in the storm towards a small poor hut a little further ahead. Kenshin quickly caught up with him. Let me help you, old man. Is this your hut? The old man almost jumped at the sight of a samurai. The rumours are true then, he said. Yuki Ona is here, and you are here to defeat her. Yes, this is my hut. We'll have to stay the night here. The path back to the village will be blocked by too much snow. What has caused this blizzard to come so strong? These are forces of evil. Kenshin kept quiet, knowing the answer, and put his arm around the old man and supported him into the hut. There was no food, there was no wood for a fire, only a pile of leaves which Kenshin helped the old man onto and a straw coat which they sat under. Despite the cold, the old man soon fell asleep, but it took Kenshin quite a lot longer. At a deadly hour of the black night, Kenshin woke to find the door of the hut had blown open and snow had piled in over their feet. As he cursed winter and brushed the snow off the old man's toes, the light of the moon through the hut was suddenly covered by a form. He looked up to see her. There she stood in the doorway, white, her hair black, but speckled with twinkling ice and moving in the wind like eels, her white kimono trailing the ground by her feet in wooden sandals. Beautiful but terrifying. Kenshin was literally frozen to the spot as Yuki Ona bent her face down towards the old man. Her breath was a thick white smoke curling around the old man's face 
his nose and mouth and into his ears. His lips went from pink to red As he spoke, he fell into a deep sleep. When Kenshin woke the following day, the sun was already in the middle of the sky and shone strongly. The drops of water falling from icicles were his evidence that Yukiona had left this part of the region. He picked up the old man putting him over his shoulders and carried the body back to the village but made sure to tell people uh, he he died of the cold I'm sorry um, there was very little I, I could do to keep him alive a few weeks passed and there was no sign of Yuki Ona and the winter although it was still cold began to act like it normally does the samurai men, pleased with the news of, of no more deaths, decided to leave the village and continue on their journey. The one who stayed, however, was our young Kenshin. He had become close with the villagers and had met a beautiful woman, obviously. In the turning of spring, he had fallen in love with her instantly one afternoon on a bridge over a trickling stream on the outskirts of the village. They had laughed. <laughs> and how, how pleased he was that spring was on its way and, and she much preferred winter and Japan's beauty in the white. They married the next winter on the very same bridge with which they first met and, and he admitted she did look more glorious in white. She was so pale, her dark 
eyes seemed to float in mid-air when you glanced up at her for a brief moment. The following winter was when they had their first child. A healthy, gurgling, hiccuping ball of perfectness. She was like her mother, bright and calm. And Kenshin began to love his wife more so, seeing all the glorious parts of her in their little girl. One night, after his wife had put their child to sleep, now a year older, she came and slinked into Kenshin's lap by the coal burning in the hibachi her delicate toes pointing away from the heat because she always hated it when her feet got too hot. Kenshin looked into her dark eyes and almost shivered. Oh, you are phenomenally glorious. When you wear that white kimono, you remind me of an adventure I once had. Oh yeah. Which is this one? She replied, familiar with this introduction to one of his samurai stories. It was either an adventure or a, or a dream. In this dream, I saw a woman who was as beautiful as you are. You're, you're very like her, actually. <laughs> Tell me about this woman, she replied, not lifting her eyes. Kenshin told his wife about the child he chased in the woods that grew taller than he and the old man in his hut, and, and then this woman came in. She was going to kill me, but, but she said she couldn't. I think she'd fallen in love with me. <laughs> she made me swear never to speak of that night. She made me swear, um, don't speak of me, nor of this night, nor to father, nor mother. And as he recalled the oath, his wife grew colder and colder in his arms. And she continued to speak the oath out loud with Kenshin. Nor brother, nor sister, nor betrothed maid, nor wedded wife. She was hovering in midair, the cold from her skin causing the inside walls to frost over. Everything went white and dark, and Kenshin was thrown against the wall in a blizzard-like wind. His throat iced over preventing him from shouting out and he now saw that his wife was Yuki Ona. All this you swore to me, my husband, even to me, and after all these years you've broken your oath. Farewell. She laughed a painful sound as her form turned into the breath of a whisper and finally vanished. Kenshin stunned, fell onto the ice floor of his own house. Why hasn't she killed me? He wondered. Was she really in love with him? Was she playing a trick and would be back soon and harder? Then he remembered his little girl asleep in the room next door. Kenshin ran to rescue her from the cold of the house, but when he got to the cot, all that was left was a puddle from frozen snow. He heard 
That familiar cry of despair he'd heard in the forest all those years ago from Yuki Ona. Then realized the sound was coming from his own throat. It echoed through the valley to where a mother stood in the snow with a baby in her arms. Yuki Ona smiled with her revenge. <laughs> Hello everybody. Thank you Talisa. That was a fantastic story. Thank you Tim it's so, Carl. It's so creepy. Creepy. Ugh, is. Oh. I um, really enjoy doing it though. Really, oh, that's quite sick. Yeah, my uh, sadistic side. Before we start, you're in the room with Tim Carp, that's me. I played the music. Uh, Talisa Teixeira who told the story. Hola. And Lonan Jenkins, who sat and listened very patiently. He snoozed at one point. That's okay. <laughs> he might have snored <laughs> after a long weekend. Uh, so, T. Lisa, what, uh, where, where did you get that creepy, <laughs> creepy story? Uh, oh, gosh. I'm sorry telling such a cold story in, I suppose, what should be spring as well. It's so cold. Um, got the story... Uh, because we were doing a, a series of winter stories at the Imaginarium. Mm. Uh, What's the Imaginarium? The Imaginarium was a space that Marbles and Ware mm-hmm. um, had created. Oh, it was brilliant. It was like a playground for adults. Um, yeah, phenomenal. It happened two, two years ago. <laughs> what is Christmas time. Christmas time. And they wanted, I guess... In their mind, they wanted some lovely Christmas jingles. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I came in. I think we all came with like these super dark stories. We were like, let's do Midwinter Tales. And then we all met up for the rehearsal. We were like, oh my God, everyone's going to leave feeling but like it makes it this Loki one. Yeah. That's really telling about folklore and ancient stories that the winter <clears throat> is fucking hard mm. and, and scary and really difficult to um, comprehend how you're going to get through it. So I guess ancient folklore have decided to um, make evil women. (laughs) (laughs) That's your answer. It's all their fault. Um, No, but I found this story, um, I think online actually. I'm fascinated by Japan because I've never been there (laughs) and I've never been anywhere like that. And I I guess Studio Ghibli Mm. (laughs) and all of these really cool um stories which have been told since 13th century you know that all of these like worms coming out of paws and people being eaten alive and all this like teeth growing too long to fit in your face like (laughs) i made all of those images up but what is wrong with me (laughs) um I think it's really, really fascinating to think that, you know, that there's amazing folklore of of beautiful, beautiful images, but the ones that really fascinate me are the ones that try to comprehend fears, mm. I guess. Mm. And also my fascination for, like, uh, parenthood in stories as well. 
This actually, the story was taken, um, there's Yuki Ono is, is part of um, like the evil spirits that they have in a lot of Japanese folklore. And then I took another story that was to do with a revenge of a mother who died and took her child with her instead of killing the dad as a sort of heartbreak and put them together because it's pretty cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the I think a lot of the stories I've told have always been to do with um, yeah parents messing up a bit, actually. It's not mm. weird. Rixie said that to me once, actually. <laughs> and then I told my mum and dad, and they were like, oh. Um, <laughs> we won't be coming to members. Um, yeah, but I guess the stories that are to do with, like, trying to get through the darkest parts mm. of the month. Yeah. What was your story that month that in the imaginary? Mm. I can't, oh, I think I did my um, my shaman story, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Um, probably. Oh, you did. Yeah, I think it's also great because doing a scary story, and we've tried to do it a couple of times where we've had Halloween events where we try to tell scary stories, but it can be really hard. And actually what you find scary is not what someone else finds scary, but I think you successfully <laughs> make it like really creepy and, and scary. Um, yeah, quite quite well, like really well. It's, it's great. The- Love the growing baby. Yeah. The sounds that you did for that were brilliant. Ooh. Why is that so why is that so weird in our heads? Like a baby that's so massive. Yeah. It's just it's like wrong. Know, yeah. Just it's wrong. just wrong. And it's like I guess a baby is like the most beautiful thing that yeah. can ever happen to a human. And then seeing it all wrong. Yeah. And then sad. having to kill it and turn yeah, it into ice no, is like no. Yeah. That's great. What uh, what was uh, what was your favorite bit in that? I think when when I told it the Imaginarium, it was so funny because it was actually someone's child came to watch the show. <laughs> um, I think young enough not to really know what was going on, but the creepy thing was when we were talking about the giggling baby. The child just, re- I think, really enjoyed your sort of music box kind of twinkly sounds that you were making and started giggling and everyone got really creeped (laughs) out by it which is really useful um it's it's funny storytelling i only really got into it through you guys um i'm I'm an actor i uh, studied with with sam ricks actually at drama school and that's how i know these guys but i uh i think storytelling is for me, the most terrifying type of performance that I've ever done um, because it's it really is highlighting your outlook on on society, I guess, and mm. your outlook on life and who to judge and who to, you know, highlight as the heroine or the hero. Um, and when you're standing there with your own clothes on and you're improvising bits and, and listening to the audience, it's... It's really fascinatingly scary. Mm-hmm. Um, whether when I've got a, you know, a costume on, someone else has given me the words to say. Mm. <laughs> There's a whole set behind you, and you know everyone's job in it. You know, in, it's so collaborative in terms of the lighting and the set and stuff to make this, this, I, I guess, like mm. a, almost like a church-like experience where you can just <laughs> sit there in silence and believe in a story together, like the for. Storytelling, it's so stripped back and so raw. 
Mm. And you're also carrying these stories which are so old that there is a real responsibility to do it right. And I think it's just terrifying. I've learned a lot doing mm. it with you. I guess you're like, you've, you've decided to take the audience on a journey with you. And, and they've decided to come with you as well. But mm. like getting them on board and getting mm. them in, interested mm. for the whole thing and trying to get them to leave with a message. Mm. That's a lot to do, isn't yeah. it? Mm. And, and Especially when you don't have two million pound budget and <laughs> BBC behind you, where it's like, yeah, it's but that, like, it really reminds you what the whole point of Netflix and, you know, I put all this stuff that's on that is, is essentially just people standing around the fire and telling a story. Um, I just, it really highlights how important these this mode of communication really is. Mm. Um, there's a re- there's a a really good bit of advice that um, someone gave me about music, and and he, he was a guitar player from Greece, um, and we had, we had a kind of jam together, and I had all these like guitar pedals and like delay and distortion and all these effects, and I was like, you know, I've got really cool sounds, and he was just like, just turned to me, he was like, at the end of the day. It's just you and your guitar, mm. and and really like so it stuck with me so much mm. because it's completely right. Mm. You, you can make all these cool sounds like you know, the guy from U two who, yeah, just, I mean, it's cool. It's like it's a sound, right? The yeah, guy from yeah. U two, and and we and we uh, yeah, sorry, Bill Bailey did the famous <laughs> thing about that guy. It sticks with me as well. Um, but it's the set when you're talking about Netflix and stuff, and like mm. some of the stuff on that on Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's just terrible. Oh, like the the original series, the, the, they just lack any kind of story. Mm. Really, like there's this vague thread, and it's just all about. I don't mm. know. They must just gather information of like what's people's favorite <laughs> clothes and weather. And <laughs> I uh, think they do. They see which which shows the Netflix yeah. are most played, and then they they commission more shows like that. And but it's... but there, there's no story. Yeah. And mm. like, you know, you on a stage with your voice and your body movements is just yeah, infinitely it's... more entertaining than it's the, the condensed stuff. squash version of uh squashes in like when you make squash you add water <laughs> my, my brain went. um version of of these really high budget things but i think that is something that you can carry through in any sort of artistic mm. um form whether you're a painter or storyteller or you know sculpture anything is is exactly what 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 that came from and what the point of of it is um and when you're doing jobs where there's you know so much pressure with you know even what that character might be wearing and there's meetings and executive producers involved and you know how what color should her hijab be and all this stuff you're just like okay let's just remember that we have to just put all of our heart and soul into the story that we're saying mm, and yeah. why we're telling it now and what the point of us all being here is. Um, it's too many cooks a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah. But I think it's something that really, really grounds me in, in terms of that exactly, of being able to do Embers and just I'm way more proud of of being in a room that have, even if there's 20 people that show up that have really sat down and listened to you than... You know your face popping up on the BBC iPlayer thing. Mm. It's, yeah. it's very, it's a very powerful. Um, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility basically when you take that on, like standing in front of an audience and and t- saying to them that you're going to bring them somewhere and show them a world. And but it's, it's a wonderful 
it's a, it's, it's a, a privilege to be able to actually to, 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 to do it and mm-hmm. to have people come and listen to it. Um, and it's something that I'm incredibly grateful to have and to be able to do. Um, and for the listeners as well, it's it you. It's a real didactic relationship where mm-hmm. it's like they're as important and it's so live and so present that if you're doing filming, you know, you could be filming something in February and it won't come out till the next January. Yeah. And you've kind of completely lost that connection with the people. And when you're there with your lovely Ember's collective crew and followers, that it's, you know, that you can bring those, that family together yeah. and that community together, which is just so vital. I find it like meditation because when I'm mm. when I'm there, I'm probably the most present I I am ever in my day to day life because I'm so connected with the audience and connected with the story and connected with myself. And it, yeah, I I feel like it's meditation. It's probably the only time where I'm not thinking about a hundred other things. I'm just thinking mm. about that. And you're in, like you said, that kind c- of conversation with the audience where you're feeling what they're what they're giving off and then you can that it shapes your story as well mm. and it's it's magic yeah. and interestingly <laughs> just... for people listening you're hoping that they are completely in that meditative state with you but also being taken everywhere at yeah. once and imagining all of their past experiences and future hopes and when you're li- they're listening to these stories that have been told since beginning of speaking i guess yeah <laughs> yeah I think I just realised is in our shows, I hardly ever see people filming it. Mm. When I go to oh, every other yeah. kind of gig, maybe it's a theatre thing. You don't, I guess you don't really do that in theatre stuff. But you go to a concert yeah. or like anything, and there's people taking pictures and filming stuff. I find I don't really see that at, at, at no. our shows. Anyway. Or even checking their phones for texts or anything. There's a real respect with stories that I think go go further than. Oh, I don't know if I can say that, actually. But for me, it is a very sort of religious experience in the sense that I don't have that very often in my day-to-day of a congregation of people mm. all together, you know, facing the same way, believing in the same thing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is really nice, yeah. you know? And, you know, there's no difference in that with a lot of people. And I sometimes I wish I, I had that in a general... You know, I wish every week me and my family and my friends got into the same space and did some form of ritual but this for me is is that Mm. and in whatever sense if you're addicted to running or swimming or you know it's that same thing which you can go back to Mm. and and vibrate together Mm. excellent let's leave it there that was quite a long one yeah well i hope you enjoyed uh this week's podcast um it's really nice to have you here talisa Lovely to be here. For your first podcast. My womb. Let me out. (laughs) No, you can't go anywhere now. Uh, uh, Please stay uh, up to date with what we're up to. Go on our Facebook and Instagram and all of those things and check out what gigs we've got coming up. We've got lots of great stuff coming up this spring and summer. Um, So thank you for listening. Thank you. See you very soon. Bye. Bye.